0: Paul Sager, I uh, first became acquainted with Paul about 10 years ago when he spoke in a chapel service at the Master's Seminary when I was a first year student, they had on the agenda that this guy Paul Sager from BMW would be speaking. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. (laughs) And uh, and then I realized that it was biblical ministries worldwide, uh, not the German auto manufacturer. But in any case, Uh, I was uh, his message just resonated in my heart. This is a man who is committed to the authority of the scriptures and to the priority of the local church in the fulfillment of the great missionary endeavor that was given to us by our Lord to disciple the nations. And so when he spoke those 10 years ago, I thought to myself, this is a guy that I would like to get to know. Because if what he is telling us is true, then this is a mission organization that resonates with me in terms of priorities. So through the years, I've heard Paul speak a number of times, and the message has only been reinforced in my heart. It is a pleasure to have him here. Paul grew up in Nigeria, where his parents served as missionaries. Uh, He lived there many years. He spent his college years here in the U.S., uh, attending Bible college and then returned in 1975 to begin a church planting ministry there among the European population of South Africa, where he served for 17 years. 1994, Paul was, uh, became the general director of biblical ministries worldwide. And through the last, uh, what would that make it now? I guess that's 13 years. Is that Right. Last 13 years or so, he has traveled all over the globe, I know, and spoken on many occasions on the issue of the priority of the local church in the, in the endeavor to bring the gospel to the nations. And, uh, and so it is with great pleasure, he is joined here with his wife, Joan, who we had the pleasure of meeting for the first time just a bit ago. But it is with great pleasure that we welcome you, Paul, to this pulpit to open the scriptures with us, my brother.
1: David, that uh, name BMW has only helped me one time in all these years. I was uh, going down to Honduras and back in those days, you, the terminal wasn't quite what it is today and as I got off the airplane, uh, you walk, they didn't have the, 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 you know, the causeway that you get off the plane, you, you had to walk down the steps across the tarmac and at the bottom of the stairs, this guy met me and said, are you Mr. Sager? And I said, yes, and he said, may I take your briefcase? And so he took my briefcase, and I followed along very closely. Um, and <laughs> and we get to customs, and as you know, in some of these countries, customs, you know, going through passport control can be a bit of a challenge. And, boy, I just everyone else is in line, and I just shot straight through. He asked for my passport, and I was through. And then went to pick up my luggage, and back in those days, you almost had to bribe them to get your own suitcase. Uh, because they'd keep in the back room there, and, and, you know, when you give them a tip, then they'd bring your suitcase out, and you could go, and... And mine were just brought out, and they were right there. And a couple of guys picked them up, and we went out into the reception area. And uh, a missionary was there to meet me, and I said, Wow, did I ever get the treatment? And a smirk on his face, he said, Yeah, I told him the president of BMW was coming on that plane. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tried that in Germany. I don't think it'll work there. <laughs> We have the, both, Joan and my, myself, my wife and I, are, are MKs. We both grew up in Africa. Had the tremendous privilege of growing up with missionary parents, her in Malawi, and my folks in Nigeria, and we met here in America. And then went back to Africa. So we've spent most of our lives in uh, Africa, and so we're sort of a little bit in a you know out of our culture being back here in the states. But we're we're living in Atlanta now, and as you can tell by my accent, I'm picking up on the culture and the lingo and everything, right? You know, there's not too many of us in Atlanta that are from Atlanta. We're all just imports there, but we've been we've been thrilled to just be able to be part of what God is doing around the world, particularly in the area of international ministries. We just a few days ago, my wife and I got back from a trip to Europe and South Africa. We go back to South Africa every once in a while just to get a fix. You know, you got to go back to home. We raised our kids there, and it really it was our home and 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 visited Europe and as I visited, visited South Africa, there were two things on this last trip that just really gripped my soul that are heavy burden on my heart that I don't know all that I can do about it. I, I don't know what to do about it entirely. And uh, since I don't really know what to do about it entirely, I'm going I'm to sort of draw you into my problem here this morning and maybe lay some of the burden on you because Though I administered in South Africa, we were back there during the apartheid years, and you sort of had to pick one population group that you administer to, and we primarily with Europeans. I'd grown up in black Africa and actually came to know Christ as my savior because of one of my little black buddies. Uh, but, but this was sort of a totally different thing, and, and now with apartheid gone in South Africa, things are different, ministry is different, you're able to do some things that maybe in the past you were not able to. But as we were there this time, we went north of the city of Pretoria, to this valley called Quamshlanga. And uh, in this valley, there's 1.2 million people. Now, it's not high-rise building. It's not densely populated like upland here. It's it, you know, spread out a little bit more, sort of over the hillsides, but over a million people in this valley called Quamshlanga. And we were going up there to meet with some folks that were not with us. They were sort of a relief agency that was working up there among the AIDS orphans. And this relief agency is trying to meet some of the physical needs of the population there. It's sort of hard to get your arms around this, but probably very conservatively, you could say that half of the people there have AIDS. There are two and a half thousand new AIDS orphans every week in South Africa. Every week. Two and a half thousand kids are losing their parents because of AIDS, and this disease has ravaged sub-Saharan Africa, and has wiped out entire villages, and, and, and people are are dying every day because of this. And the the ramifications of what this can do for South Africa and what what the impact is, no one can really even get their arms around it. Well, it's just an incredible, incredible problem. We we went up there to meet with some people in a relief agency that were doing some of the physical side, trying to figure out what can we do to minister to people spiritually in that kind of a setting, maybe piggybacking on the back of the relief agency that is working there because their focus is primarily on getting people fed and getting drugs to them and and uh, not, being, not all that much being done on the spiritual side of things. And while we need to meet physical needs, obviously the most important thing is a spiritual need. And so we were trying to figure out what we could do, and it was just such a incredibly life-changing thing to be there among these people that you know are dying and to meet these children who no longer have parents. Part of the culture there is if you leave the land of your parents, you lose that land. And so they've figured out a way to keep the kids on the land. And so you may have a household that is led by a 10-year-old child. But they have grandmothers that sort of look in on them and they bring them into these centers after school and they feed them a good meal and... And then sort of the rest of the afternoon, they hang around these centers. But it's sort of a ready-made situation to evangelize and minister to kids. You see, in in every crisis, there's also opportunity. And there's an incredible crisis going on there right now. But incredible opportunity. When you think of it, here are all these kids that don't have their parents who are going to lead them down a road towards the paganism that dominates their lives. And so these children are wide open and uh, available to anybody that will show them some time and attention. And uh, there's, there's just some incredible opportunities there, and we haven't figured out entirely how we can capitalize on that or what we need to do, but, but I came away from Kwam a burden for saying, what can we possibly do? But it just seems so overwhelming when you're talking about tens of thousands, even millions of people that need attention. Before we went to South Africa, we'd been in Europe, and we were in Germany this time, but I... We're working as a mission, a family up there, to figure out what we can do by way of ministering in Western Europe. By the way, Western Europe is still an incredible, incredibly needy mission area of the world. They say that when the wall came down, there were more Christians in Eastern Europe than there was in Western Europe. And there are still incredible needs that exist in Western Europe. And the country that has gripped my heart in Western Europe, well, several of them have, but one that's at the top of the list is the country of Denmark. Denmark has 5 million people. There are nine missionaries working in that country that we know of now. North American missionaries. There could be some others that are under the radar screen, but in the in the mission handbook that sort of tracks where American missionaries are, there's only nine listed. That would include everything from Pentecostal to you name it. Everything they're, they're all called missionaries, and, and there's nine. This is a country that has incredible needs. They they sort of invented postmodernism. You know, before we ever even thought about this, they were already way down the road on this. It's a country that has led much of the rest of Western Europe in its own spiritual decadence and the liberalism that exists there. This is a country in which people's hearts have been hardened to the gospel. And the, This morning, here in North America, about 40% of our population in North America will be in a church today, some sort or another. 40%, 4-0. In Denmark, there will be fewer than 1% of the Danes that will go to any kind of a church. There's about 2% of the people that go to church, but that's because the majority of the people going to church are the immigrants. And they've been open as a country to immigrants coming from around the world. And so you have these immigrants that are interested in spiritual things, but the Danes are not. As we've taken a look at this country, this incredibly needy country, that is just radically opposite from they There in all of the poverty and the tin shanties and the dirt roads, now up north a few thousand miles this country of Denmark, and the city of Copenhagen, which is the, the fifth most expensive city to live in in the world. You know what it's like to live in a big city. Well, this is the fifth most expensive city in the world. And as we try to think in terms of how do we put missionaries there, what do you do? You know, it seems like financially this is just way, way above our heads. The hardness of people's hearts, the, the affluence that is there, the lack of sort of need for anything just radically opposite from Uh As we looked into it, we, we found out that they limit visas to missionaries to two years. Now, you know, normally it takes the first term for a missionary just to figure out the language and the culture, and they're going to only give us two years' visa. I mean, that's just sort of a huge obstacle to us. And I don't know the answers, and we're trying to figure out some stuff and try to understand what we could do and how we could approach this, maybe from a different way than we have in the past. But I... I can't get away from the burden of this country of Denmark in Western Europe, so different from Kwamschlunga, South Africa, but yet there's one thing in common between both those places, and that is all of the people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the one thing that regardless of your affluence or poverty, you need. And that's what we're here to deliver. How to do that is an incredible, incredible challenge. The only way we're going to do that is if 100% of us here get engaged. The tendency is to think, well, at least if the elders are involved or the missions committee is involved, we're sort of doing our thing. But this morning I want to try to argue that every one of us in this room needs to sign on the dotted line to somehow get involved in reaching this world for Jesus Christ. To sort of set our thinking and frame our thinking this morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter 10, to a passage of Scripture that you're really familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, but as you, as you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, you really have to back up just a couple of verses to get the setting, the context in which Jesus gave this story, because once you understand why He gave the story, it sort of takes on a whole new meaning to us. And the story really begins back in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Now, when we read lawyer, today we sort of think of an attorney. Of an attorney. You know, you go into court, he's the guy that sues you. Well, a lawyer back in these days was, was actually a synonym for a scribe. He was a guy that was trained in the law, the Old Testament law. Here was a guy that was well-educated. Here was a guy that knew the Old Testament. And so here was a person that was coming basically not to ask a legitimate question, though the question was legitimate. But he was trying to test Jesus or set a trap. And the verse tells us that. This certain lawyer stands up because here's a well-educated guy that knows the ins and outs of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he tests him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That same question has been asked by several people in Christ's lifetime. There's, you know, other rich young rulers and other guys that have come along and said, verbatim, what do we do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question, isn't it? It's maybe not quite the right question, but it's a good question because those of us who know Christ as Savior know it's not about doing. And so the question is not what I do to inherit eternal life. But at least if you'll ask that question, you'll get headed down the right direction. And you can get your theology sorted out later by the answer. But this guy says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was not a legitimate question from his vantage point because he was testing Christ. He was trying to set a trap. Well, Jesus, of course, is a whole lot smarter than this guy. Can you believe that someone would actually try to debate God? Well, that's what he's trying to do here. He's debating God. And so Jesus comes right back at him and says, I know where you're coming from. Well, he didn't say that, but I'm sure Christ was thinking that. I know where you're coming from. You're trying to set a trap. Let me, let me answer you here in a way that you're going to have to, you're, you're going to get a red face. So verse 26, what's written in the law? He understood this guy was a lawyer. In other words, a person that knew the Old Testament well. He says, what's your reading of it? You tell me what you think. And instead of Jesus lambasting him, he start, simply turns the tables on him and says, why don't, why don't you tell me what you understand from the Old Testament? So the lawyer answers in verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, verse 28, You've answered rightly. Do this and live. That verse, verse 27, you've seen it many other times throughout Scripture, basically is one of those verses that takes all of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and just sort of distills it down to one laser point. This whole book is basically basically summarizing that one statement. If you'll love God and love people, you're basically going to be doing everything you need to be doing here. And so it's one of those classic passages of Scripture that just sort of compresses so much into one statement. And Jesus says, you've got it. Do this and you'll live. Immediately the lawyer knew he was trapped. Would he be so brazen as to say, I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind? All is pretty conclusive. I mean, you know, that sort of includes everything. And surely he couldn't stand up there in front of Jesus and the crowd that was listening and saying, It's with every ounce of my being that I love God. And so he's now embarrassed. And in order to save face, because he's a sharp thinker, he, he turns the discussion slightly. Because he knows he can't really deal with that first one, loving God with all of his heart. Because he knows deep down that that's just, he, just, he just isn't doing that. Instead, he focuses on the second part of the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, and changes the debate. Verse 29, he wanting to justify himself said, Who's my neighbor? Let's, let's get into a philosophical discussion here about semantics. You know, let's define neighbor. Who is my neighbor? He knew he was trapped, so in order to save face, he says, I, I can't be embarrassed in front of my buddies here, so I'm going to change the topic slightly, and let's talk about, you know, who a neighbor is. And it was an answer to that question that Jesus now gives the story that we're so familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan. Because in this story, Jesus is going to define for us who our neighbor is. And there's a surprising definition for most of us that think we know what the term neighbor means. Well, let's take a look at the story. Here's the Lord's answer. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem... To Jericho, when it says "down," it literally means down. Within just uh, well, less than 20 miles, you'd go, you'd actually uh, drop in elevation over 3,000 feet. And so, when it talks about going down to Jericho, it literally was that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Jericho was a place where there were a lot of priests that lived. In fact, back in those days, it was probably the highest concentration of priests. Uh, they, they, they would go up to Jerusalem, and they had certain priestly duties, and they would have their, their time on, the, on, uh, on sort of the, the docket to, to be up there and to do ministry. But then their home was back in, in Jericho. And so he was undoubtedly finishing up his responsibilities up there in Jerusalem uh, for a number of days or weeks, and now he's heading back home. Or he's heading back down to Jerusalem and this this priest comes along and sees him there. And when he saw him, verse 31, it says he passes by on the other side. The priest of all people should have been the guy that stopped, right? It's not the same, but could you imagine one of the elders or pastors walking out here and there's a guy lying bloody on the sidewalk and they just sort of step over them. Say, you know, we're late for lunch, we're going to go eat. You know, you can't imagine one of your pastors doing that, right? But that's 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 really what... I mean, the priests were, were people that had voted their lives to serving in the temple. Of anybody that should have had compassion on this guy, it certainly should have been this priest. Second guy to come along, verse 32, was a Levite. Now, the Levites were sort of the assistant priests. You know, you can sort of understand a little bit, you know, the priests, they were sort of the top dog. You know, they were the guys... But the Levites were the assistant priests and they were the guys that actually got their hands dirty and that handled the sacrifices and, and had to clean the place and you know sweep the floor and all that. And so maybe, maybe the priest is thinking, you know what, uh, a couple hundred yards behind me, there's the Levite. And that's sort of his kind of work to take care of guys like this. And so we'll leave that to the deacons to take care of. You know, that's, that's not the job of any you know, good pastor. And so he just sort of walks by, saw the same thing, he passes by. And here's here's where the lightning bolt is in that story to those people that day. Verse 33. There's a certain Samaritan. As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You'd not expect someone like a Samaritan to do that. And the thing that really was the zinger was that the Jews standing there, the last person in the world they would have ever thought of doing something like this would be a Samaritan. The Samaritans were... Samaritans were basically half breeds There were people that had been brought in. Well, there was a time when God had taken all the nation of Israel into captivity and had taken them away to another country. And that other country, in order to sort of keep Palestine running, had imported foreigners and said, you go in there and you can take over the homes and the businesses and the farms and you sort of keep the country rolling while we've got these Jews out here in captivity. And so the Jews, after the end of their captivity, come back and here's these foreigners living in their homes and have their businesses, and picking their fruit from their vineyards, and, and farming their farms, and own their businesses. And the Jews come back, and you can imagine the response that they would have had towards these people. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. What if, what if a foreign country captured all of us as Americans that took us 5,000 miles away, and we're, we're gone for 400 years, and then, then we come back here, and this place is populated by people that now live in our homes, our, our, our ancestors' homes, and they've taken over our country we'd not be so happy about squatters in our homes. Well, that was the attitude of the Jews back then. They they actually despised these people, the Samaritans. And so, the least likely person in their thinking to have done something good would have been the Samaritan, but Jesus deliberately picks on a Samaritan and says, this Samaritan, when he came by, he had compassion. There's some... Observations I'd like to make of this story. There's basically three responses that we have when we see a need. I started off by talking about Kwanchlanga in South Africa and Copenhagen in Denmark. You responded in one of three ways as I started telling those stories. Some of you here, your heart's aching like mine to say, what do we do? How can I help? Your heart right now, your mind is racing to say, how do I get engaged in helping AIDS orphans in Africa? What do I do to meet the spiritual needs of a country like Denmark? Though it's affluent and on the outward appearance, everything's okay, but we know inside there's spiritual rot. What do I do? You're like a Samaritan here who who is moved by compassion, but others of you, as I told these stories... Maybe you've seen so much and heard so much that your heart is actually callous now, and you weren't moved by that story as I told about Schlanga and as I told about Denmark. You, you, you just sort of braced yourself, and and we live in this world in which we are just flooded, and I and this is where I don't really know what to do with this story in today's world. I guess it'd be a whole lot easier if we lived, you know, within, you know, just five or ten miles and. And it was just people that we saw that that were, were our neighbors. But, but with television and the internet and everything else, we are immediately taken into the homes and the lives of people literally around the world. In fact, you probably know more about Osama bin Laden than you do your next-door neighbor. And because of communications today, we are immediately spread out all over the world. I don't know exactly how to factor that into this, but... One of the things that we have to guard against is becoming calloused as we watch t- uh, the news broadcasts on television, as we, we read the newspaper, to become calloused about the incredible, incredible needs that exist around the world. But we can find ourselves that way, where we, we're just so inundated with information that, that we do become calloused. A third response is curious. You know, there are some of us that are just curious. Well, tell me more about these guys in Kormschlangeh. Oh, isn't that bad? Isn't that pitiful? But if there's curiosity that then ends, we sort of end up where the callous do. We, there, there needs to be a curiosity. That's what's sort of dragging me into Denmark. We didn't have to go there. We've got so much more work that needs to be done just in the countries we're working in, in Western Europe. But curiosity drew me that way. But but I don't want to become calloused about Denmark. I want to be calloused about About You you see, curiosity is a good thing. We need to be inquiring. But some people are just curious for the sake of curiosity. You know, uh, I'm afraid sometimes that short-term trips to the mission fields are just that. You know, we're really curious about how the rest of the world lives. And we go there and we take a look at them and their poverty. And we come back and say, boy, I thank God that I don't have to live like that. There's a curiosity. Boy, they ate different food and they did things differently. But, boy, I sure am glad to get home and we just forget about them then when we get back. It's so easy for us to show curiosity but not do anything about it. These three men had exactly the same experience. In fact, the phrase here is exactly the same when they saw him, when they saw him, when they saw him. Each one of them saw exactly the same scene, but only one of them had compassion. Some observations. It's possible for us to know all of the right answers but not apply any of it to ourselves. You know, knowledge is knowledge can be dangerous. The Bible says a lot about being doers of the Word. In fact, He warns, if, if you hear the Word and you don't do something with it, you actually become self-deceived. That's dangerous. It is dangerous for you to be here this morning. Because if you take what you're hearing this morning and just maybe show a little bit of curiosity or you become calloused about it, you basically become self-deceived. That's a dangerous thing. To know the Word of God and not do anything about it. And there's so much that needs to be done that if we just brace ourselves and do not respond in compassion, we become like this priest or this Levite. Basically, he was... The Samaritan had moved from, from just doing things out of duty to doing things out of love. He would moved from where this lawyer was, where he just debated about who a neighbor was to actually being a neighbor. And there's a world of difference there. Second observation, you know, it's it's oftentimes most likely the person that we would not think would do it is the person that jumps in and does it. God's work has been done all down through church history by the most unlikely people to do it. I don't know what your opinion is of missionaries. Maybe you've got them up on some pedestal somewhere, but let me assure you the fact we're just plain old Joes just like you. You know, we were sitting in some pew minding our own business at one point, and God tapped us on the shoulder and sent us. And we, we struggle with our own spiritual walk with God. We you know, we struggle with our marriages just like you do, and raising kids and dealing with finances and health. And, I mean, there, there's, you know, there's nothing mystical about it. We're just plain old people. That's all we are. But God has down through church history always used just plain old people to do His work. And there's some tendency to put people on the pedestal and say, well, if I can't do it like that, I can't do it. But you know, most of God's work is done by the least likely people. We, we receive at our mission agency thousands of checks every month. The majority of those checks are very small checks. It's not people that are sending in the millions that fuel missions it's people who simply are the least likely it's the widows it's the people who can't really afford to give to missions are the ones that are making this thing happen you take a look at missionaries you say boy they they, they, don't have their act together well we're at least trying to do something what are you doing you know uh we're just plain old people like you struggling through life trying to uh, trying to act out of compassion and responding to god for the needs that are there and and oftentimes it is it is the least likely people that are doing what needs to be done. When we went to Kwam one of the places we went was a little seven-bed building. I don't know if you could, you couldn't even call it a hospice or anything else. It was, just a, it was just a little building that had seven beds in it. And it was a place where they bring adult AIDS patients to die, and they normally spend the last two, three weeks of their life in this little seven-bed place. And so there's constant turnover of people that are coming. They care for them in the last days of their life giving them probably the best couple of weeks of their life, but at least surrounded in a place where people love them. And, of course, the final stages of AIDS, it's not a pretty sight, and it's, oh, it's a disgusting thing, but these people are there caring for these people that are dying. And we're, we're sort of meeting some of the people that were working there and went in and met some of the patients that were there, and we're standing around this, this very dignified, well-dressed lady, uh, probably in her 50s, walks out of an office, totally out of place dressed incred- immaculately, I mean, just radically different from anything else. And, and we met Babette and started talking with Babette, the lady that, an Afrikaans lady that, uh, that has a bed and breakfast down where she lives, but every day after she's finished you know, fixing breakfast for the people that come, are staying there, she drives up here to Kwamshlanga and spends her day working among those AIDS patients as a volunteer. You wouldn't think she would do that. Based on the, the history that you understand of South Africa, but it's the least likely people. And right now, you're probably sitting here thinking, I'm the least likely person that can do anything about Copenhagen or Kwamschlange or anything else around the world or even my next door neighbor. But let me assure you from this story, it is the people that are the least likely that are the ones that do it. And so, if you're feeling kind of small here this morning and insignificant and underqualified, guess what? You're qualified. That's how that's the kind of people that God uses. Notice something else about this story. Jesus' definition of neighbor is somewhat radically different from my definition. If you were to say Paul, tell me who your neighbors were, I'd start telling you about the Chinese couple that lives on the left right side of our home, the the couple from New Jersey on the left side of our home and the Indian couple that lives across the street from us. They're Hindu and you know all the incense they name their kids after the pagan gods and But they make great curry, and uh, and so if you said who's your neighbors, I would start talking about people that live on my cul-de-sac. Jesus turns that definition or that word on its head and defines it a totally different way. Notice his definition includes several elements. Number one, it has nothing to do with geography. When this verse says, "Treat your neighbor as yourself," love your neighbor as yourself. He's not limiting this to geography. This Samaritan was on a journey, as well as the person that had been attacked. They probably had never met each other in their life. They were just sort of two strangers that happened to cross because of these across their paths because of these circumstances. And so, this has nothing to do with geography. This, there was no one living out there. This was not their home. This was they were on a journey. And and so, when we think in terms of neighbor. It doesn't have to do with the person that happens to have the plot next to yours. Notice the second thing. It's it's simply someone who has a need. When you find someone that has a need, instantly they become your neighbor. That sort of raises the ante on this whole thing, doesn't it? That, that sort of radically changes my understanding of neighbor. When I find some people in Quamcholongo or in Copenhagen that have a need, immediately God says they are my neighbor and I have a responsibility towards them. Notice the third thing. is someone you don't know. You don't know those people in South Africa or in China or Brazil or Turkey. They're not necessarily people that you know. I can tell you about my neighbors, but there's a lot of people that I don't know, but I I know about them. Jesus says they're your neighbor. It's possibly somebody from a different culture. Uh, This was not in Samaria. In other words, the majority of the people would not be Samaritans and so, though it doesn't tell us, it just says it's a certain man. It doesn't say this guy was or wasn't a Samaritan, but logic would tell us that this was probably a Jew that had been attacked. Because We're down south. We're not in Samaria. We're not where the Samaritans live. This Samaritan happened to be out of his turf. He was out of his country, if you want to put it that way. And so it was probably just a Jew that was lying there beside the side of this road, but it was a Samaritan who went cross-culturally to minister to someone else. And so I wonder if perhaps that ought to be an element of our definition of neighbor. That our neighbor is not just somebody that has the same skin color that I do. But my neighbor may be somebody in a totally different culture than me. It sort of sounds a little bit like missions, doesn't it? It's obviously someone who cannot repay you. For here's a man that was, there was no way, he could hardly probably even say thanks. And when you take Jesus' definition of neighbor and now superimpose it on our understanding and our responsibility to the world around us, it radically changes our sense of responsibility as to what we need to do. And the thing that confuses me is now that we have the Internet and television and newspapers and CNN and all the rest of that, all of a sudden we are bombarded with a whole lot more neighbors than we ever would have thought of back in the horse and buggy days. I'm not sure what we do with that. Other than I want to make sure that I don't become calloused towards all that I'm seeing because of the flood of information coming my way that I, I just sort of deflect it and, and toss it off and, and don't pay any attention to it. And for some reason, as I watch a television program or see the news or read a newspaper, when I hear about the people in the floor, I, I can't just become callous. I have a responsibility. They are my neighbor, according to Christ's definition. And so we read about what this Samaritan does. Verse, 12, verse thirty-four. he says, went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil. And why? He set him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn, he took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him, whatever you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? I'd like to use a little acrostic this morning to sort of frame our thinking, and basically to throw out a challenge to you. to get in in the game and get engaged in God's work on planet Earth today. I just want to take that word, simple. Basically, what the Samaritan did here was simple. It was simple. Let me explain that first of all, and then I want to come back around and make the same application to your responsibility to your neighbors in the planet Earth today. And try to encourage every one of us in this room to come up with our simple plan to be involved in what God is doing on planet Earth today. Notice, first of all, it was sacrificial. The Good Samaritan took his own clothing, his own oil, his own wine. He took out two denarii. A denarii back in those days would be basically one day's wages. So if you sort of bring that into today's world, uh, if you earn $50,000 a year, that would be about $400 here and he left $400 there out of his own pocket for a person he'd never met before. He he instead of riding his own donkey now walked the rest of the way to Jericho. So the good Samaritan sacrificed s. Yes. Notice something else, it was immediate. i. Could you imagine uh, the good Samaritan saying, "Well, man, I got a business meeting down here and I, I If you're here three days from now, when I get back, I'll take care of you then. Now it was immediate. He stopped, probably missed a couple of appointments. But he stopped in his tracks and immediately did something to help this person in need. And so in this acrostic simple, it was sacrificial. It was immediate. It was not something he was going to do later. He was going to stop right now to do something about it. It was number three, measurable we were talking to the Good Samaritan right now, we could sort of give him a checklist and say, did you bandage the guy up? Check. You pour on oil and wine? Check. You put him on the donkey? Check. Did you take him to a hotel? Check. You pay the hotel bill? Check. You take care of the bill when you came back? Check. You see, it was measurable. This wasn't something ethereal. He wasn't talking theory here. Here was a guy that was actually doing something that was measurable. It was two denarii. And so what the Good Samaritan did was measurable, sacrificial, immediate, measurable, and personal. Probably the priest was delegating to the Levite. The Levite was saying, I don't want to do this. I don't know who I can delegate to, but I'm out of here. But here was a guy that actually got down in the ditch with the person that was fallen and didn't delegate out a responsibility, but instead took of his own supplies and cared for this guy physically. Put him on his own donkey. Walked the rest of the way into town. And after he had picked up a person that had been bloodied and placed him on the donkey, can you imagine what his clothing would look like? He needed a dry cleaner as well. In other words, he got in the same ditch with the person that, that... He got messy. got soiled. He put himself in harm's way because who knew but what lurking in the Shadows or in the rocks above them were the same robbers that had taken this person's things and had robbed him and that he may be attacked as well. He got personally involved in meeting these needs. It was not something to be delegated. Number four, five, it was loving. Love is simply a decision that we make to put another person first. That's all he did. He said, here's a person in need. I'm going to put their needs, their comfort." Before mine. If this was a Jew lying in the ditch, he was actually doing it for a person that, if they were in other circumstances, would have hated him. That's the story of missions. You know, you may think when we get off the 747 on the other side of the pond that there are just sort of natives standing there with arms waiting for us to, you know, get off the plane and bring them the gospel not true there are some places where you know that might happen and they're very infrequent majority of the places we go they would just assume we leave in fact sometimes they're very verbal in that sometimes they're very physically abusive in that wanting to chase us out but, but love says even though you don't want me I'm still going to put your good above my good and even if it means persecution if, if, if I've got to go through all kinds of things in order to serve and minister to you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, that's love so it's simple, it's sacrificial, it's immediate, it's measurable, it's personal, it's loving. And then the last one, it's effective. Did this guy take care of this guy in the ditch? Of course he did. It was effective. It solved the problem. You know, we in Christianity have been big on faithfulness, as we should. We are. There's a lot in the Bible that says about the, the, that we have a responsibility to be faithful. But sometimes we have patted ourselves on the back so much about being faithful we've forgotten that the Bible also talks about being effective and that we have a responsibility to be good stewards of the resources of both our finances and our time and somehow we have to leverage those finances in that time to accomplish something and just hiding our talents because we fear God is not the way to go there needs to be an effective usage of the talents that God has given to us And so here was a man that was effective. He was practical. He was strategic in what he did. Now let's back away and go through that same thing again. Except now let me apply that to missions because where I'm going with this as we try to conclude things here in just the next few moments is for you to get engaged in this one thing that God has you on the planet for. And that is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of this planet, to your neighbors. In some instances, those neighbors are going to be literally your next door neighbor. In some instances, it's going to be somebody across town. In some instances, it's going to be across state. Sometimes it's going to be across the country. Sometimes it's going to be around the world. I don't know where you fit into this big picture, into this puzzle. All I know is that God wants every single one of us somehow to be engaged in this process, regardless of how young or how old we are, all of us has a part to play. And if we're going to meet the needs of the world today, it's going to be because every one of us gets in the game. As long as there are people in the stands observing, we diminish what could possibly be accomplished. All of us have to get down on the field. And in order to do that, you need to come up with a simple plan for yourself. Could you fill in for yourself this blank? My job in reaching the world for Christ is... If I were to ask you to stand up right now and say, tell us that, you know, could you stand up right now and fill in that blank because you know exactly what it is? Maybe you're not quite sure what you should be doing. That's why you've got pastors and elders here that, that can help guide you into that. But all I'm encouraging you to say is that every one of us needs to get in this game and get involved. And as you do, make sure that it passes the simple test Is it sacrificial? Don't do something in the kingdom of God that is not sacrificial. Do something that is going to cost you. Don't do little things for God. Do big things for God. Make sure there's some sacrifice involved. Would you give if no one knew you were giving? Would you give if there was no tax-deductible receipt? Would you pray if no one knew that you ever prayed? Do something in sacrifice. Do something immediate. Our tendency is to say, you know, when I get more education, when I know the Bible better, when I'm older Christian, when I have more money, you know, we we come up with all these things. You know, when I get to a certain point, then I'll get engaged in the process. But that's as silly as this guy walking by and saying, look, I'll be back in ten days and I'll take care of you you're still here. The people of the world right now need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now. I mean, right now. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Right now they need it. Whatever you do, make sure that it's immediate. May I encourage you that you don't let this day go by until you can fill in that blank and say, my involvement in world missions and reaching the world for Christ is. And I have no idea what that is for you. But don't procrastinate. Whatever it is, make sure that it's measurable. The These things say, well, I'll just pray for missionaries. No, 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 make it measurable. How many missionaries are you going to pray for? how often are you going to pray for them? How are you going to stay informed with the needs that those missionaries have? And so a measurable goal when it comes to praying for missionaries is to say, I'm going to pray for 10 missionaries every single day. And I'm going to get all of their prayer letters and I'm going to spend 20 minutes a day praying for missionaries. That's measurable. So make sure that it's simple. It's sacrificial. Do it right now. Make sure that it is measurable. Make sure that it is personal. You see, we can't really get by with it to say, "Well, we've got a missions pastor and we've got a missions committee and we've got a missions budget," so you know the church is sort of taking care of this thing. Every one of us needs to get engaged to get in the ball game. I have no idea what your role is, but you somehow need to make this personal. You need to be in the ditch, getting your hands dirty, doing whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. Make sure that it's loving. Who is it that you most dislike in this community? Who is it most dislikes you in this community? It could be that that is your neighbor. You may in the depths of your heart feel a racism welling up within you and you just can't stand people from such and such a country. You fill in the blank. They're your neighbor. And maybe that's who you ought to be reaching out to, like this good Samaritan. Make sure that it's effective, that it's strategic, that it's practical. Make sure that what you're doing will accomplish something. You know, there's, there's really a lot that's being done today in the world of missions that is nice, it's good, but it's really not effective, it's not strategic. And that's where you need to lean heavily upon the advice and counsel of the leadership of this church because they are thinking very strategically about how they're going to accomplish what God requires of this church by way of reaching the world for Christ. Make sure that what you're doing is strategic. There are all kinds of things happening today in the world of missions. One of the major trends, I mean, this is a major trend in world missions today, is short-term trips. About a decade ago, there they they were sort of this many. Today, we are spending, as North Americans, $1 billion a year on short-term trips. That's billion with a B. That's sort of Washington, D.C. kind of money. Uh, that's a lot of money, I think. I've never seen that much before, but I know it's more than a million. And uh, we are spending. And I've often wondered, you know, if, if, if Foothill Bible Church had a billion dollars in the checking account and God said, I want you to spend that the wisest way you can to establish churches and take the gospel across the world, would you do it through short term trips or would you maybe opt out for some other strategy? I, I, I'm not telling you what you need to do. I'm just saying that's the way we've got to start thinking. I find it somewhat amazing that people will travel 5,000 miles to do something they won't do here at home. know, pastor asks you to come and sweep the floor, and you won't do that here, but you'll, you know, you'll, you'll spend $2,000 to go somewhere else to do it. Uh, and spending that $2,000 is it the most strategic thing. Uh, $2,000 would hire a lot of people in that country that you went to dig that ditch in, and they would probably dig the ditch faster and better than you can. I, I don't want to be critical here of anything people are doing. I'm just saying we've got to think strategically. We've got to make sure that what we're doing is not damaging the ministry on the field and we are actually enhancing and helping that ministry. And so as we think through what we're doing in the world of missions, we have to think strategically and make sure that we are leveraging the time, the resources, the money that we have so that we're accomplishing what God wants us to. May I challenge you to come up with your simple plan to get in the game? Let me encourage you to do it sooner rather than later. Remember immediate. But make it simple, sacrificial, immediate, measurable, personal, loving, effective. We were standing there talking to Babette in uh, this little seven-bed facility where people, age patient, comes to die. And she was telling the story about how she... started coming up to this place and how she works there, and some of her friends back down in the affluent area where she lives learned what she was doing. And she said their comment to her was, Why would you do that? Just let them die. I don't know about you, but that just jars me. Just let them die. And what was behind the comment was, These people got themselves into that trouble because of their sin in the first place. Just let them die. I mean, they got what they deserved. When we think of people's physical pain, I I can't imagine one of us could walk out of here today and step over a suffering person and just go on our merry way. But we do that. Over and over again when it comes to people's spiritual needs, we walk right past them. We are calloused. Or at the very least, we're curious. And perhaps we would not be so bold as to say what Babette's friends did. Just let them die. But our actions betray that our heart's desire really is. Just let them die. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to such an extent that we cannot rest until we are engaged and doing what we need to do to accomplish your purpose in our lives.
0: In Jesus' name I pray, amen.